We will continue looking at hermeneutical principles, and I've been stressing this whole approach as the grammatical, historical, contextual method, commonly referred to as the literal method of interpretation. Now, in some of the literature, it'll be referred to as grammatical historical. They're talking about the same thing. So, we've looked at the first principle. That's where we get the grammatical part, the linguistic principle, grammatical. That's that part of the title here. And, as I said, this is so important, that's why I put it first. So important that the whole approach has that linguistic idea in the title. Now, next, we'll look at the contextual principle, and then after that, historical. Well, So we're going to look at the first three major principles where the title itself comes from. So grammatical, historical, contextual method, or literal method. So we looked at first, linguistic. Let's look at the contextual principle. And stated simply, this principle, context is the final determiner of meaning. Context is the final determiner of meaning. And when we say determiner of meaning, whether it pertains to a particular word, I illustrated that last time when we were looking at that illustration of trunk. Context is the determiner of individual words, but context is also the determiner of meaning for extended passages or sentences or paragraphs. So, context is very important. And in many ways you could say this is as important as the linguistic principle. In the class that I teach, we talk a lot about hermeneutics off and on, and I've emphasized, and I just ask the question, what are the three most important principles? And the class responds like Jim says, context, context, context. <clears throat> so it's very, very important. Just again, remember we read this, the atheist view of life, and if you remember... It's the context of the reading. I don't change any of the words in the little saying here or paragraph here. It's just a matter of changing the order and the order determines a different context and you use a little slightly different punctuation and you come up with two radically different meanings. So context is important. Just for fun, I will live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It is just foolish to think that there is a God with a cosmic plan, that all an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to pain and the suffering in the world. It is a comforting thought, however. In other words, this thought. It is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. 
In a world with no God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I'm lost in need of saving. That's the atheist point of view. And remember, we read it in the reverse order. Totally different meaning. Same words. They're just grouped differently. I'm lost and in need of saving. It is it is ridiculous to think everything is fine. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. See, I'm reading the same words. The more you have, the happier you will be is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I'm deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that all that an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to the pain and suffering in the world. There is a God with a cosmic plan. It is just foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs. That's what you said so amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. It's well put, isn't it? That's more amazing than a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the point I'm making, two different contexts, same words, arranged a little bit differently. In fact, not much differently, just read in different order gives you a totally different meaning. And that's what happens when either we neglect context or in some way uh, misuse the context of any given passage. You can come up with a different meaning. And that's true of individual words, that's true of sentences, that's true of whole paragraphs, like this illustrates a whole paragraph, if you will. Now, there are different types of context. When we speak of context, oftentimes we're talking about textual context. That's the primary context that we're talking about. But there are different kinds of context that you need to be aware of. What we mean by textual context, you have a page of scripture, and in this page you'll have a paragraph here, and then you have uh, another paragraph here, and then you have another paragraph here, and so on. You might have another one here, and it might go on to the next page. When we're talking about textual context, we are studying, let's say, this context in the text, and when we're talking about textual context, we're talking about how where it falls in the rest of the text of the Bible. That's textual context. And when we refer to context, that's the primary thing that we're talking about. But that's not the only context. There is also literary context. And what we mean by literary context, it involves literary form. And sometimes a passage will be in a particularly literary form, and the form serves as a context for that passage. A piece of poetry, for example, that falls within that literary form, that form gives a poetic context or a literary context. So that's important sometimes. A lot of the Bible is historical narrative. That 
gives you a literary context to that particular passage. So literary form of paragraphs and books. And there are some books that are entirely of a particular literary form. The Psalms are entirely poetic. Uh, some of the historical books are predominantly, if not entirely, historical narratives. So there's literary context. Very important, and I'm going to talk about this principle next. There's a historical context. Where does this passage lie in terms of this broad history of the Bible in general? And in fact, world history. Where does it fall in terms of world history? I'm going to talk a little bit about that next. So historical context is important. Cultural context. All of the Bible is written in a particular cultural and has cultural influence. Remember I told you there's a variety of cultures represented in Scripture. Those are the gaps that we want to bridge in hermeneutics. So sometimes a cultural context will help you understand a passage. So there's cultural context. There's also what we might describe as a theological context. The theological context of justification by faith and faith alone in Paul is a different theological context than justification by faith and works in James. Faith without works is dead. Two different theological contexts. That will help you to harmonize James with Paul. They're not in contradiction. Justification by works is not contradicting Paul's justification by faith and faith alone. They go together and by understanding the two different theological contexts, that'll help you put together that harmonization. Is it what we mean by types of context? Now, textual is what we primarily refer to when we're talking about context. In other words, where does this word, where does this sentence, where does this paragraph fit in the overall ideas that this author is trying to communicate? Now, when we talk about context, we also need to be aware of the influence of what we call circles of context. Circles of context. There's what we would describe as a specific context. The specific context is on this little drawing on the board here. This is the specific context. In other words, I'm studying this paragraph. A paragraph, by definition, is a unit of thought. One paragraph, one unit of thought. In other words, there is an idea that this whole paragraph is dealing with. That's the specific context of any given passage. That's the most important context. In other words, there's a particular word here. This word here is in this specific context. So this is the primary determiner of that word. Sometimes even within a paragraph, a writer, and I'll give you some illustrations of this, a writer may use the identical same word and even use that same word in a different sense. That's not unusual. 
we do the same thing when we communicate. So you might have that same word over here in a different sense. Identical same word. But the specific context, you're going to see words that precede this one that are going to give the meaning to this one. And then you're going to have words that precede this one and follow that's going to give meaning to that one. And from that specific context, you'll be able to see that the author is using that same word in uh, different ways. I'll give you an illustration of that when we do word studies. But this is the specific context. Now, one of the assignments, one of the special assignments, those of you that are doing them, I'm asking you to deal with the immediate context in relationship to a specific context. And the reason I mention this now, invariably, I've tried to reword it, and I've tried to rework the question. Invariably, the students don't get this concept for some reason. So I'm trying to reemphasize and show you the importance of it here. So you have this specific context, then you have an immediate context, which is the context around the specific context. The specific context includes at least this paragraph. Uh, this is specific, and this is immediate, and at least this paragraph. At least the paragraph before, and at least the paragraph after. Now, it could extend beyond those paragraphs, but essentially that that is closest to the specific context. Make sense? The further away you get from the specific context, the less influence that outer context has on the meaning of the specific context. But because these two paragraphs, or the paragraphs closest to the specific context, these will have more influence on the meaning. So sometimes you have to go beyond the specific context and put it within that broader context, textual context, to understand what the author is saying in that specific context. Make sense? So you have immediate context is the next circle. And then you have the circle of the book or the context of the entire book. And if you're studying, say, let's, let's just use an example of the Gospel of John. And here's a particular paragraph that you're studying. The broader context outside the immediate context is the Gospel of John. And you have to take into consideration the context of the whole book. And sometimes a writer will use words or ideas in one book and different ideas in a different book using maybe similar language or similar words. And because it's a different book, it may have a slightly different meaning. So you need to take that into account. So these are circles of context. And then beyond that, we have what we would describe, like I have on the slide here, the remote context. And you can have different layers, by the way. In fact, this, you give, give an example of what would be the next layer after the book. Say we have, say we're studying the Gospel of John, what might be another layer of context that we might look at. The epistles of John. The, the other writings of John, exactly. The other writings of John, the, the epistles in this case. 
and even the book of Revelation. So the other writings of John are a wider context. John sometimes uses words that are peculiar to John. In other words, he carries a nuance sometimes of some words, somewhat slightly different, or sometimes a different emphasis by the number of times that he uses particular words sometimes are different than, say, Paul or somebody else, Luke or someone else. Let's look at another layer here. Let's say instead of John, let's say we're talking about, let's use Colossians. And even within the writings of Paul, we might have layers of context here. What might be another layer, if we're studying, let's say, Colossians, within the writings of Paul? The prison epistles, for example. In other words, that group of epistles that have a similar historical context or identical, just as Jim pointed out, Colossians and Ephesians have a lot of similarities that can be attributed to that circle of context. Make sense? So, you're looking at the prison epistles as opposed to the other epistles that Paul wrote. And even beyond that, you have another circle, maybe, the, or a separate circle, that you might talk about pastoral epistles. See how these are layers of context? These all may have an influence in helping us to understand certain things that Paul writes in particular context. But those are what we would describe as a remote context. And even in a circle beyond the remote context, whether, let's say, Paul or Colossians, what would you say next? What is the next circle of context? Well, I guess I would express it as as a systematic study Okay, that's the broadest context. But there are layers within that. For example, if we're dealing with Colossians, you would include epistolary literature in general, which would include James, which would include Peter. So that might be a circle of context that would be different from gospel or historical narrative or the book of Acts. So, the type of literature may be a circle of context. What beyond that might be another circle of context? And this is important. What would you say, Beverly? Just say beyond, beyond the epistles. Yeah, let's say one larger. It's a remote context, but it's larger than just epistles. Anything written by an apostle as compared to those not written by apostles? Mm, yeah, I don't, yeah, you might, you could, you could do that. I'm thinking of something very clear and very definite. Broader. Well, kind of what, close to what I was talking about a minute ago is the doctrinal study. Well, you're getting, yeah, you're talking about theological now. Category. Yeah, theological. Study. Yeah. Specific. I'm talking textual. Okay. You can say New Testament. New Testament, exactly. Oh, I see. Did you? <laughs> You should have said it louder <laughs> to get credit. What's broader than that? The whole New Testament. That's a context. It's not only a textual context for everything in the New Testament, but it's also a historical context in its own time frame itself. 
And then obviously beyond that would be what circle? Jim said it earlier. The whole Bible. The context of the whole Bible. And you can do the same thing in the Old Testament. You'll distinguish the old from the new, but you'll have context. For example, if you're in the Pentateuch, you're, there's a circle right there, the writings of Moses, and then all, all down to your specific context. So, circles of context. The specific obviously has the greatest influence on determining meaning. The immediate context has some influence, in fact, more than anything else. And the further out you go, the book has some influence. And the remote context is everything outside of the book. Circles of context. So, context is important. This is the way that we communicate with one another. And this is the way that uh, God communicates to us through his word through language and the context of of that particular language. Books are written as units. Books are written as they have specific purposes, they have specific topics that they're dealing with, and everything within a book is a unit, and all of the smaller parts all fit in to the, the book. And that would include the broader idea of the whole Bible as a book. So it's extremely important. Well, our approach is grammatical, historical, contextual. We've looked at grammatical, we've looked at contextual, so obviously the next essential principle is this historical. So let's look at that, and let me give you a little introduction to it, and show why it is so important in the study of Scripture. First of all, to state it in a simple way, historical setting contributes to meaning. Historical setting of any passage in its particular context contributes to meaning. That's your historical principle. Zuck, in his book, has a good statement which expands this idea of the historical context in that he says, quote, each biblical writing was written by someone. In other words, a person in history to someone, to a specific hearer or readers. In other words, particular people that existed in time and space in, the quote goes on, in a specific historical, geographical situation. In other words, to people that lived in time, not fictitious, real people in history. And this is true of each biblical writing. We have no ivory tower treatises in the Bible. Every one of them to a specific group of hearers or readers in a specific historical geographical situation and for a specific purpose. That's Zook. And, and some of those were written to the, the church as a whole, uh, like the Gospel of John. Yes. Some are broader than others. We'll talk about some of those issues when we talk about epistolary literature. Exactly. So that's what we mean by the historical principle. Historical setting contributes to meaning. 
So let's talk a little bit about the importance of history. The Bible is tied to history intimately and is very important. Actually, when you think of history, if you're thinking biblically, you ought to think of history from a biblical perspective. Let me give you a biblical perspective on history, which is different than what you will get when you take a history course in the public schools or if you take a history course at UNM. Let me give you a biblical philosophy of history to emphasize that the Bible is tied to history. And this is why it's important. First of all, the Bible gives us a complete philosophy of history in more than one passage, but particularly in one passage. And it's interesting that this passage, let me give you the context. (laughs) Context is important. Paul is dealing with thinkers, philosophers in Athens, in Acts chapter 17. People that are trained, people that are intellectual, the scientists of the day. And it's in that context that he is reversing their worldview before he gives them the gospel He has to reorient their entire thinking. And one of the things that he does is he outlines a biblical philosophy of history. He does several other things in terms of worldview in Acts chapter 17. One of the things, and the thing that I'm going to emphasize here, is what he does with world history. And in Acts 17, you could actually go all the way to verse 24. In fact, I'll start reading in verse 24 because it starts there and it's also mentioned here. But he gives basically a worldview, a biblical worldview, before he gets into the concepts of the gospel. So he's doing apologetics. And in order to convince his audience, these philosophers, he has to reorient them and give them some background before he gets to the gospel. And the gospel statement is very, very brief. In fact, they don't let him go very far in it. So this is all apologetics, and in that we have a philosophy of history. Let me start reading in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. He starts with creation science. To a scientific group, he starts with scientific statements to reorient their thinking. These are evolutionists of the first century. Starts with God as the creator of all things. And he goes on, who made all things, uh, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, there is a sovereign that is over the creation. The creator is a sovereign that has control of all of the events of what he has created. In other words, he is sovereign over history. He's Lord over heaven and earth. In fact, I don't want to get off on this tangent, but he is distinguishing another element of the biblical worldview. There are two realms. There's a spiritual and there's a material realm. There's a lot of elements of worldview in this little passage that we have in Acts chapter 17. In fact, it's a very profound statement. 
And then he goes on, he talks about self-existence of God, and then let's pick up in verse 26. And he made from one man. Now he's talking about world history in relationship to man. And basically, creation starts world history from a biblical perspective. Creation is the first event of world history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he's focusing in, he made from one man, this is a historical statement, every nation, in other words, you want to know where all the nations came from, historically, from one man. And notice he doesn't quote anything in Scripture. He's talking about philosophers that could care less about Scripture. They could care less about Genesis, care less about the Bible. He's stating ideas here from a worldview perspective. From one man, he doesn't say Adam, one man, every nation of mankind, chapter 10, where the nations come from, and 11, to live on the face of the earth, having determined their, here's sovereignty again, Lord of heaven and earth, determined their appointed times and their boundaries. What he's saying is world history is under a sovereign control of a creator. The creator has sovereign control and history is heading in a direction. Pardon me? That is powerful. Yeah, read that in your UNM history text. God, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, geography, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him with purpose. History has purpose, has a direction. Let's summarize this biblical philosophy of history. Let me summarize it for you. Number one, God as creator is the author of all historical events. In fact, in every history book, this should be chapter one in world history. Now, you won't find it, but this should be chapter one. This is a philosophy of history. This is a biblical view of history. God as creator is author. You have that in 24. He made all things, the earth and everything in it. Verse 26, he made man. So mankind has its origin in a creator. And as creator, he is author of world history. Secondly, that passage also speaks of God's sovereign plan. He's Lord of both heaven and earth. And he is predetermining events relating to peoples, nations. So history is under a sovereign control of God. History has this linear concept. The Eastern religions and Eastern cultures have a cyclic idea. Reincarnation, you come back and relive things. And you may be reincarnated several times in Eastern thought. That's not biblical. In fact, it's antithetical to the Bible. The Bible is linear. In the beginning, it has a beginning, and it's going to have an end. The Big Bang is at the end, not at the beginning. Do you get it? <laughs> In the beginning, God created out of nothing. No Big Bang. If there is a Big Bang, it's at the end. So it's linear. It's heading in a direction. It is unfolding. And the Bible gives us a biblical outline of the major events of world history. And by the way, the next course I'm going to teach, 
I'm going to emphasize all of these aspects, and we're going to look at some of these issues in the course I teach in the spring. So it's called Biblical Foundation for All Things. But the concept of a linear directional history that is under the control of a sovereign creator. It has a direction. It involves time and geography. God has set boundaries for nations. And also times, the rise and fall of nations, the rise and fall of empires. They're all in the sovereign hand of God. You see some of this more explicitly in like books of Daniel where they're even prophesied ahead of time. But as you follow the progress of biblical history, you see that God has been behind all of these things. That's the emphasis of the Bible. You find that in your history text. And fifthly, very important, there's a divine purpose behind all of history. So number one, God as creator is the author of history. God has a sovereign plan that he is working out. That plan is a linear plan that is heading in a forward direction. That plan involves time and geography, as Acts 17 tells us, and it involves a divine purpose. That divine purpose, and here's the purpose of world history, that mankind may seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The plan of history is that God lets time go on, and the church age has gone for 2,000 years because God wanted opportunity for you and I in this room to have that opportunity to seek him if perhaps we might grope and find him. And God raises empires, brings them down, creates situations, and in all of these situations, man has opportunity to seek him. That's the purpose of world history. The interesting thing of the grammar here, the if here, in in Greek there are different classes of Greek. You guys have studied Greek, first, second, third. Are you aware of a fourth class condition in Greek? You've heard of it? (laughs) This is a fourth class condition. Yeah, fourth class condition. Hmm? Very, very remote possibility. Yeah. In other words, God is the one that draws men to himself. So if perhaps, what Paul is saying, and the likelihood is so remote, one in a million chance, you might kind of summarize, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. So if it's left to man, the possibility is very, very remote, but with God all things are possible. And in this predetermined plan, there are some that God draws and brings to himself convicts, illuminates, works a work of regeneration. I'm having difficulty trying to maintain that what you've given us right here is is only an example of the principle, historical principle. Is that correct? No, 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 no. What I'm giving you here is why this principle is so important is because the Bible is tied to history in this intimate way that God, in other words, history, God is the author of it. So it's important because God is the author of it. History is important because God has a sovereign plan and in the Bible we have a revelation of that plan. 
It's just summarized here in the Acts passage. And the biblical concept of history is it has direction. We're going to come back to this concept. We have a, a principle called progress of revelation. So all of these are related to why this is so important. This actually is supporting the fact that historical principle is a, is, a is important. Okay. Yes. And I thought this was just one example of no, 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 no. This is this this is to to lay out the the tie that history has, or how the Bible, the tie that the Bible has to history. And in fact, the Bible is history. It's His story. It's God's. History. Secular history is just a kind of a, almost a distortion of real history, is what I would say. And it involves time and geography and has this divine purpose. You have a complete philosophy of history in that Acts passage. You see that? And that's why it's tied to history. It's also tied to history because of the importance of biblical covenants. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on biblical covenants, but let me just give you a real brief explanation here because biblical covenants are very, very important. In fact, I'd encourage you to do a study on this in itself. A lot of what I'm going to deal with in the that next class will deal with these covenants. These covenant biblical covenants are basically God setting the parameters for history going all the way back to the Noahic Covenant. Now, I'm not going to explain in detail how that works out, but basically, in the Hebrew text, berit, here it is, here's the Hebrew word for covenant. I just throw that up there for you students that are in the languages. It's a technical word. It's a legally binding contract. The Bible is unique in that in that it gives us God entering into covenant with man. Archaeologists have noted this. In fact, William F. Albright notes this, that this is unique in the Bible, that God enters into covenant with man. You don't have that in any other religion, any other culture, God entering into covenant with man. And in these covenants, they are legally binding contracts, They're agreements, they're like pacts, they're treaties. They're found in the secular world. When it comes to God, God does not need to enter into covenant. In fact, God doesn't even need to reveal himself. He's chosen to reveal himself. He's chosen to make certain promises going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where he promised a solution to the problem of evil. Above and beyond the promises of God, God chose to enter into covenant. This is God condescending to man. And he did this with Noah for the very first time because Noah would have been shaking in his boots after the Genesis flood and to give him double assurance that not only does God promise, but he enters into a contract. When you think of covenants, think contract in our usage of the word. Identical meaning. A contract has parties to it. You and the bank, if you have a mortgage, you have entered into a contract with the bank, and in that document, it has your name on it, and has the bank's name, and the bank president or whoever signed it 
Those are the parties to it. It has stipulations. And what does the contract do? It ensures, what is it, what does the contract ensure? Performance. Very good. That the parties will carry out the stipulations of the contract. So it specifies behavior to be complied with. And when God enters into a covenant with mankind and later on Israel, God is binding himself legally to comply with what he stipulates in the covenants. And I go into some detail explaining all of the covenants in that foundation class, those of you that take it. These biblical covenants lay out the parameters for all of world history after those covenants. We are still living under the stipulations of the Noahic covenant, the very first one. The nation of Israel has been living out the stipulations that God set out in the Abrahamic covenant. And then there's other covenants that expand the Abrahamic covenant. They lay out all of the parameters for world history. World history is going to end up the way that God has bound himself in the Abrahamic covenant. History has been progressing such that God has been performing according to what he said in the Abrahamic covenant. You got that? These are profound ideas. World history shows two things. Shows that God has performed according to what he has said faithfully. He brought about the whole nation of Israel for one. That gives us assurance that God is going to fulfill what he says in those covenants. And none of the covenants have been ultimately fulfilled yet. They'll all be fulfilled in a millennial kingdom that God promises, sometimes very specifically in some of the covenants. History is bound by the covenants. The Bible is based on history, or maybe I should say history is based on the Bible. History is based on the Bible, and the Bible gives us particular events. Not a philosophy per se, although it is a philosophy, but it's broader than just a philosophy. It includes history. So the Bible is not just a spiritual book. It's a scientific book. It's a historical book. It's a political book. It's a social justice book. And especially a historical book. So the creation, the fall, the exodus. The exodus is the salvation experience of the nation of Israel. The law at Sinai. These are the most important events of world history. Old Testament history. All of world history is dependent on those events. Before and after. In the New Testament, what's the most important event? In fact, what is the most important event of all world history? 